Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth. Brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. For a technology that powers so much of today's global economy, the electric motor hasn't really advanced all that much since it was invented in the mid to late 19th century and helped to usher in the Industrial Revolution. That may explain why today fully a quarter of global electricity consumption is wasted by legacy, inefficient electric motors. Many people think that plotting a truly sustainable future that can slow climate change requires a new kind of mechanical revolution in electric motors. Ryan Morris believes his company, Turntide Technologies, is poised to lead that revolution. As chairman and CEO, Morris leads a startup that has developed and is commercializing what it calls a smart motor system, which is more energy efficient and cost effective than traditional motors. It also doesn't require the use of rare earth minerals or metals, which have fueled some of the more incremental improvements in motor technology in recent decades, but are widely considered a source of environmental destruction. Combined with automation, intelligence, and features such as remote monitoring, Turntide's technology is already starting to be installed in building HVAC systems, agricultural smart barns, and commercial and industrial vehicles. Morris launched his first company right after getting his master's degree in engineering at Cornell University. By the age of 27, he was executive chairman of a publicly traded company, and he started building Turntide in 2017. Ryan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about Turntide. What is the problem you're trying to solve? Turntide's mission is ultimately to make every watt worthwhile for humanity. And the way that we're going about that is, is that we recognize that half the electricity in the entire world is consumed by electric motors. I worked in electric vehicle powertrains prior to Turntide. And this was something that even with my engineering background didn't occur to me. I didn't think of all the HVAC, all the refrigeration, you know, pretty much everything that moves in civilization, there's actually an electric motor behind it. The main architecture, the dominant architecture of motors, uh, Nikola Tesla invented in 1888, and there's been basically very little improvement since then. They, they are certainly better than combustion engines. So the core innovation that we created was this new architecture that doesn't use any permanent magnets, and it's much more efficient. We live in this era of exponential technologies, exponential improvements, and we really harness that so that we can drive energy waste uh, out of all these systems whether that's in buildings or in, in electrification with transport. It's really making all these systems intelligent and efficient. You talk about how your smart motor or technology does not need any rare earth minerals, and this is a big part of the benefit. Right. The architecture that we are the leaders in is called a switched reluctance architecture. And it's actually a very old idea. You could think of it as the limit function of the simplest mechanical electric motor that can be built. Uh, no special materials, just steel and copper, so electromagnetic, but no permanent magnets. If you look historically, motors are these very mechanical things, like the companies that make electric motors today are basically founded in the late 1800s. There hasn't been a, a lot of change in that field for a long time. It's really been sort of based around the materials or the mechanical aspects of it. And with the architecture we have, it's really very hard to control. It wasn't until you had all these breakthroughs in computing power where you could get billions of compute cycles a second for dollars, uh, that this became feasible. And rare earths, as you, you highlight, this is a big geopolitical issue. They're extremely environmentally destructive to mine. 
the vast, vast majority of electric vehicles today, for example, that are taking advantage of the most advanced electric motor technology need these very scarce, very expensive, environmentally destructive materials in order to uh, achieve those high efficiencies. So we're looking to be the next generation that's even better and not needing those uh, exotic materials. Your initial focus is heavily on building operations and HVAC systems. I would say we're about 50-50 between things that move and things that don't move. So we have built built environment where you're plugged into the electricity grid, and then there's transport, which we're really focused on commercial, industrial, and specialty. Not so much the passenger car segment, although maybe five years from now, we'll, we'll be focused on that. Uh, but we're really focused on markets that have really been underserved. So you read a lot of headlines about electric cars in the passenger car space. Basically, everything today that moves with fossil fuels is, is going to electrify and there's a lot of underserved segments that we're really focused on. It is kind of amazing when you think about it, motor technology, how little has changed when you compare it to the huge changes in other kinds of technology. Do you have any sense of why that sort of stayed relatively steady state in the last decades or century more? Yeah. I mean, if you think about what is an electric motor doing, for example, or how do you move something, it's fundamentally a very electromechanical problem. You can't just get a bunch of software engineers to go make some amazing code and move all the atoms and high energy things around. They historically were very different domains. You sort of lived in the world of pure software, or you were in the world of pure mechanical. What's happening is there's really this convergence between the two, and that's a very, very recent phenomenon. The advances in batteries are thanks to material science, which is very computationally driven, for example. Um, and so we're trying to harness what I call the freight train of Moore's law, which is, I would argue, the most predictable thing in human development, this idea that you have an exponential price performance improvement in information processing, which at its core is really about the fact that we don't forget things. You know, We can keep building on the back of previous knowledge. But if you're in just the mechanical domain, you don't have an opportunity to harness these kinds of trends. So it really you have to kind of reinvent the DNA of what you're doing from software first, which is basically what Tesla did. I mean, they they took the car and and created it as like a software system integration problem first and then used the best components over time versus, you know, hardware first, like a lot of the incumbents. Your technology originally started almost back in the aughts. Can you tell us briefly about your past experiences and just how they led you to founding Turntide? Yeah, I have a pretty unusual background. So I, I, I sort of joke, I have like a Benjamin Button inverted career. I was a pro road cyclist and national champion rower kind of during during college days, which it turns out that was probably a way better education than my engineering degree, just in terms of the pain tolerance required to go and change some of these industries. I was really fascinated with, with Warren Buffett early. I actually personally learned about nuclear fusion when I was 11 from a documentary and then as I got deeper into that, it's like, well, okay, if you want to solve these really hard physics problems, you need a lot of capital and resources. And that led me down this pathway into business and, you know, Warren Buffett and how do you apply a lot of capital to big problems after college. I started investing in other small public companies and recognized that a lot of them were not being run very well. So I ended up actually being a kind of a shareholder activist to go turn around underperforming companies. I went into decades old companies that I thought were positioned well to take advantage of an inflection point in technology. The first public company was a healthcare service business that basically was still using fax machines for everything. In that case, I recognized that technology doesn't move necessarily in straight lines. There's times when you have these sort of discontiguous change, like 
you won't incrementally go from an internal combustion engine to an electric vehicle. There's a big step change and inflection required to go from one paradigm to another. And so I was chairman of three public companies that were kind of stuck in these very old markets. On one hand, there was a lot of negative baggage that came along with that. But on the positive, a lot of these very high reliability industries, you can't kind of just show up in the consumer space with a new product. It takes you five or 10 years to build the trust, build the credibility of, of the people who are in those spaces. For me, the pathway to Turntide was I was working on electric vehicle powertrains and learned about this switch reluctance motor tech. And it was like a two minute thing of, wow, this is obviously an architecture that's an information bounded problem. You should be able to throw a lot of compute at that and basically solve the problem. And so I started looking around the whole world of who's working on that. It was mostly in academia. There was, uh, as you alluded to earlier, there was kind of a, a previous attempt. I say it's analogous to general magic, like Tony Fidel, the founder of um, Nest and iPod creators, one of our investors and in his first job. It's basically this group that spun out of Apple and they had exactly the correct idea for the iPhone, greatest you know consumer product of all time. And it was a total failure. It was like a $400 million bonfire. And it's because they were 15 years too early. If you think of $100 of semiconductor can buy you one minute worth of music storage, so that's cool to an engineer, but it's sort of not very compelling as a product, but you add 15 years of more slot doublings and that's a thousand hours of music. That's a multi-billion dollar product. And so there was an attempt in the nineties to make switch reluctance work and you could kind of make it work, but it wasn't really efficient and it had a bunch of other issues. It was sort of like the general magic made the iPhone quote work, but it wasn't quite there from a mass market adoption perspective. So we knew it was possible and it was really just a question of, okay, how could you get all the pieces together? Could you have the underlying enabling technologies to actually solve this problem that people in geeky academic motor circles have been talking about switch reluctance as kind of the panacea for, for many decades, but nobody had actually put in the effort to take it over the finish line, nor could you really conceivably have done so until maybe five years ago, just in terms of the availability of the underlying compute components. So the long story short for Turntide is there was this technology spun out of the original IP. It gets a little technical, but it's sort of inverting the geometry on its head. It's called high rotor pulse or physical optimal geometry for this type of motor. And it was spun out of the university invented in 2006 by Piyush Desai, who's still with us as a motor designer. It took 10 years basically to get the tech to work. So this is, you know, whenever the inventor has the, uh, the patent and the stroke of genius, it's like, okay, like I've got the patent, like I'm done. It's like, well, you know, in 10 years with another, you know, hundred million of investment, yeah, then you can have something that works. And then you are at the starting line to building a company. I'm certainly not the inventor of the technology, but I recognize that it should have been feasible. I really have assembled the current team here. When I, I joined, Turntide was previously called Software Motor Company. Uh, it was basically a research project that had made big breakthroughs. And so I grew it from a group of nine people to we've got almost 600 people now. Yeah, it looks like the last few years have been pivotal to Turntide, Ryan. You you have the different investments, Amazon's Climate Pledge Fund and Bill Gates' Breakthrough Energy Ventures. You've won a litany of awards for the product. You've just completed a, a new funding round. I believe you've reached a milestone of more than 5,000 systems installed. I'm wondering, given the, the recent momentum, but before that, the, the sort of long road you were just talking about, how, how have you found going through the different cycles of interest in sustainability and even to a certain degree, IoT as well? The original ideas 
for Turntide was really this intersection of IoT and sustainability. We're certainly anchored in the fact that we have 100 plus patents on this very unique deep, deep tech, deep science, electric motor design. But the idea was always to package that as a system. You know, you don't want to just be a component. You really want to go solve a problem for, for what the customers have in the real world. I guess it's been four and a half years since I've been working on, on this full time. And every six months, I feel like, okay, we're going to break through this thing and then we'll have some kind of stability. And then I, I don't know if it's like a pathology thing with me, but we keep kind of raising the bar. It's like every time we get some kind of milestone done, it's, you know, okay. But then the goal that we're going after is this massive, you know, there's hundreds of billions of dollars of, of electric motor driven systems sold every year and half the electricity in the world. So it really is like a 2040 mission. We've got a really amazing team now, but it's only really been, I would say, since the middle of last year that sustainability tech, you know, deep, deep tech has kind of come back in the investment world. We sort of had to self-fund in a sense. The first two to three years, it was really all the investors who had backed me in other endeavors in the past. If I had not had that experience and just tried to go to the investor venture community until maybe a year ago, it was virtually impossible to get funded for hardware, for hard tech. There is still a big hangover from clean tech 1.0 biofuel and other things that were sort of inherently uneconomic back from 12 years ago. So I think it's really come back. To what degree has regulation around emissions and sustainability played a role, especially in the recent years? I would say it's a mild tailwind for us. I'm always wary personally of getting into businesses that are dependent on things like regulation or government subsidies. I definitely want to have free market. One of the issues with Cleantech 1.0 is you had all these subsidies for biofuels, for example, and then as soon as they went away, the market collapsed. I think it's really important to have a business that just inherently can be cheaper and better and therefore have the tailwinds from free market forces. That said, there are a lot of accelerators that regulatory forces are doing. If you look at the electric transport side, countries are banning the sale of fossil fuel driven vehicles starting in 2030, depends on the state or the jurisdiction. I think California is 2035. UK, I think I said 2030. That's definitely a tailwind because now people are scrambling, looking ahead saying, wow, we really need to do this or we are not in business anymore. But we're helping them solve those problems. I would argue they were going to do that anyway, because these systems keep getting lower in cost and they perform dramatically better, lower maintenance, better fuel efficiency. It's definitely a tailwind and we try to navigate it, but it's not something that I'd ever want to be dependent on. And if that's been a bit of a tailwind, what have been, in your mind, the key drivers of your recent momentum? It took 10 years to get the technology to kind of work. So going from patent to actually getting the thing to be a functional commercial product. That was in 2017. And then I thought it would take maybe two years to do the initial proof of concept with a product that worked at scale. And in reality, it took closer to four years. There's a lot of third-party validation. Virtually everything that we do inherently is in a very high reliability system. It's a high bar. It's great to save energy and be more efficient, but at the end of the day, it has to work. These are systems that need to last for 10 or 20 years. Our history there's no shortcuts. And I kind of like problems that don't have shortcuts in a way because it's hard for everybody. And once you get through it, then you're usually in a pretty good position to keep accelerating. We're by no means at the finish line yet. Like we're really just ramping up. I mean, we're kind of at about a hundred million run rate revenue now. 
working to scale up a lot faster in a few different markets. But as we keep growing and breaking down these barriers and become a trusted partner in the market, I'd love to figure out how we can help shorten those cycles so that people can get to a more sustainable operation, whether it's in their building or in agriculture or with electrification and transport. The first time took five years of really intense work, but I think for the next customer, the next design, the next model, we need to accelerate that pace. But the good news is once you've done something once, doing it the second time, it's a lot easier. I would assume that once you've really proven that and you've convinced folks to start to work with your technology, it can sort of take off exponentially from there. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just reading some stuff about some of the early days of Tesla. They're sort of famous for start at the high end of the market and then move down. So the Roadster is a second or third car. So if it breaks down, it's sort of a weekend thing. But if your car is your only car and it breaks down on your way to your job, like the Model S, that's a different bar. It actually took Tesla four years with the Model S to go from something like 30, 40% failure rate on the drivetrains needing replacement down towards kind of industry standards. And so these are important curves to recognize how you navigate what markets you go into first. Theoretically, we could go use our ultra fault tolerant motors and nuclear power plant, but you kind of don't want to start there as a startup. <laughs> you want to work your way up. Speaking of electric vehicles, I know you guys have had acquisition in that space. I believe it's Hyperdrive. And you now have a division called Turntide Transport. What is driving the push into that market? And how does that play into your broader strategy? It's a huge focus. I would say it's basically half the company. We're working to leverage a common technology platform around the electric motors and power electronics. In transport today, it's going to take a bit more time to fully utilize the power of the switch reluctance technology. That's more of a next generation technology. And the demands in transport are just quite a lot higher compared to in a building. We are using switch reluctance technology today in some hybrid applications. A lot of people on our team, including me personally, have a history with electric vehicle powertrain. The acquisitions were companies that me and a number of others on our team were part of four or five years ago before turn time. It was really nice to be able to accelerate what our plans would, would otherwise have been by getting the people and some of the IP back together to have a way to get into the market much faster. Even though we are relatively new to transport, we're leveraging you know, the team and some of the IP that's been at this for decades. And then we're working to merge that with our next generation motor technology. The way I think about it for transport is it's really a two-phase thing. So phase one, going from even the most efficient fossil fuel driven engine today to average or moderately efficient electric drive system, you're roughly 2x efficiency improvement. And then to go to kind of an optimal electrification solution, you get another maybe 20, 30, 40% improvement. There's a huge push just to electrify and get into the new paradigm. And then once you're there, there's all kinds of optimization work that we're going to do over the next three, four, five years. And that includes getting rid of the rare earth magnets. That includes you know, integrating the subsystems much better to just be lower cost and better performance. But in the transport space, in contrast to buildings, you're going through, I would say, an even bigger architectural shift, eliminating the need for fossil fuels at all versus bringing the intelligence and IoT into the system in buildings. So it's really more automation driven versus decarbonization driven. I think you've spoken about five, 10 years down the line, you could envision 
playing a role in electric vehicles, consumer as opposed to commercial transportation. Is that something that you see in your long range planning as a real piece of the business? It would be a mistake to focus on that today because it's like somebody else is going to solve that problem anyway. I want to be focused on things where we're going to have the biggest impact and actually be able to move the ball down the field sort of years or maybe decades ahead of where it would happen in the absence of turntide. In the case of passenger vehicles, just call it the high volume segment generally, sedans, trucks, that sort of thing. There's obviously a huge amount of resources from the big OEMs, the big tier ones to go electrify that right now. And virtually all of those are dependent on the use of rare earth magnets. I think what's going to happen is over the next three to four years, from a supply demand perspective, you're going to start bumping up against capacity constraints of rare earth mines and production. That's going to make the prices go up, even in a friendly geopolitical scenario. And then if you start having wobbles on that, it's going to get to a boiling point, I think. We're going to have a solution with our switch reluctance tech that will be very helpful to how the scenario is likely to play out in the high volume electric vehicle space three, four, five years from now. But in the meantime, the focus is really on building up these specialty markets that frankly, nobody else is serving today. Eventually, the market will have a pressing need for your technology, it sounds like. Yeah, there's a lot of research, including from the government, on how this is a strategic national issue. Uh, I mean, it's a global issue, frankly. The rare earth issue is not going away. It's only trending to get worse in the sense of supply-demand imbalance. You were talking earlier about wanting to be able to succeed economically without any need for government subsidies, that sort of thing. It does seem that your technology is actually less expensive to own and operate than the conventional alternative. I'm wondering how the commercial case for your motors interacts with the sustainability case. Which value prop resonates more with customers? I think the sustainability gets you in the door. Uh, but ultimately, companies are economic animals and they're trying to use their resources wisely. That's why kind of clean tech 1.0 back in 2008 in that time frame ultimately was a false start because the idea that people would voluntarily pay twice as much for sustainability was ultimately not something that would really scale. I wouldn't separate them into two separate domains, but it's that just having the focus on sustainability within a company, for example, you start to realize, wow, there's so many new technologies that are actually just good investments. Our motors, if you're upgrading the HVAC system, typically it's about a two-year payback. So you're sort of up there with LED lighting upgrades, which there's been tens of billions of dollars of upgrades sold. It's really ultimately about total cost of ownership needs to be better. And you know that includes the energy and then the maintenance. Having fewer failure modes from an electric vehicle or from a motor and an HVAC system, there's a carbon footprint of having a technician drive out and go fix a thing. So all those are things that we're trying to reduce. In the building space, how important is the Riptide acquisition, which I think is building automation software? How important is that to the whole value prop and being able to do what you want to do going forward? We've had this vision, this approach to really doing the whole intelligence for the system. And in particular, like I said, we're focused on markets that are not well served for lots of reasons by the incumbents. So if you look at the kind of sub 100K square foot building space, very, very low, like maybe 10% penetration of building automation systems, the big Honeywell, JCI, those guys are really focused on the larger skyscrapers, thousand largest buildings in the world. And so the Riptide team, we had been building that kind of capability internally 
they really had thought about the problem that similarly, they had spun out of Cisco and they had built this universal kind of building connectivity. One of the problems with buildings is the massive heterogeneity of all the equipment. You've got 20 year old equipment from all kinds of different manufacturers and different shapes and sizes. That ability to have an open platform is really key. And so they had some really great technology that helped us interface and connect with whatever was in the building. It's one thing to get a new car, but nobody's going to go tear down all the buildings in the world and rebuild them. How has it been working with the building and real estate sector in terms of finding an openness to your technology? In some circles, people think of real estate, commercial real estate as a more cautious old mine sector. I'm eternally grateful to our early customers, early retailers, and JLL has been a really strategic partner for us. I think they manage 5 billion square feet of commercial office space, and they really genuinely are working to help all their clients on sustainability. Certainly, we've had a lot of grace with early adopters that we've worked incredibly hard to help satisfy. We're really at this inflection point now where we've got these initial customers, we're kind of have our infrastructure in place to be able to scale Globally, we're in North America and then also in the UK, and next year we'll be going quite a lot more globally. There's definitely several layers that you have to stack together. There's getting the product to be universal, but then you also need the service network. If you run a business, you run a software company, you run a retailer, you want to focus on your core business, how you serve your customers. You want to be having constant discussions with your electricity provider. <laughs> you just want it to work. And I think that's the way that a lot of industries are going more towards these kind of managed services are essentially putting more responsibility back onto the manufacturer. We're trying to own that responsibility early because it ultimately helps you improve what your outcome is. So it's sort of an outcome-driven sale. Right, right. Along the way, have some of your early customers been part of the design process at all? You know, we always hear that hardware is hard. Yes. <laughs> In the more recent years, were you getting input as you were fine-tuning? Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's where some of the people who were in those early adopter camps were instrumental to helping us work out the details, work out the kinks. We're in some ultra high performance sports cars that are now for the first time hybrid production. These guys want to push the limits and that's awesome. I'm an engineer. I want to push the limits of what's physically possible. Those experiences really help us know what the boundaries are of what's possible. And there's other cases where you just need a lot of little practical considerations. So you go into a dairy barn or into a retail store that's right next to the ocean with salt spray in the air. <laughs> These are things that are very hard to simulate in the test lab by being super focused on feedback and listening to the customer. It just helps us build a much more scalable future. You guys work with OEMs. Did it take some time to figure out how to work optimally with them as partners? It's a very engineering intensive kind of sale. I mean, they're ultimately trusting us for their core business. So whether that's a vehicle, like in the transport space, for example, these are not commoditized parts. You know, this is the sole source. You have to trust uh, that we're going to deliver. And we have that trust from some really big customers. What do you think you've learned about what it takes to grow as an entrepreneur in the sustainability space in particular? When I hear sustainability space, I think of, okay, how do we make things that haven't changed for a century now sustainable? So what does that mean? That means you need to have really intense persistence. That's where 
I really feel lucky that I had that early experience in life with some of the most painful sports, you know, throwing and cycling. Those are the ones where people are working hard where nobody's looking. It takes a long time. You have to build that bridge between understanding how things have been done because there's a reason why things are the way they are. I mean, I have no animosity towards the fossil fuel world. That was a big step up from horse manure. <laughs> so, you know, understanding what you're up against and having the persistence. And I think we've really developed quite a unique culture within Turntide. Maybe this is somewhat of an extension of my personality. I tend to feed off of if there's some sort of chaos or something, I'll sort of become calmer as opposed to neurotic. We've developed, I would say, a really unique culture where we're ready for surprises. We're ready for big challenges and are able to stay really calm and level-headed to face them head on. When you've got really deep technical systems like with electric motors and high powers and stuff like that, you got a shoebox sized thing and an inverter in a vehicle that has as much power as a whole apartment building going through it. There's not a lot of room for error, but just sort of being really calm and working on solving the problems all the way through, you just got to be really disciplined. I guess that's been probably my biggest lesson, that ability to remain calm. And COVID last year was a huge test. I wrote a little post on Medium about how we handled COVID as a company. And ultimately, I think it made us quite a lot stronger. Speaking of COVID, I noticed in your five agreements on your website, the phrase don't avoid reality is mentioned twice, actually. <laughs> so that really caught my eye. What does that mean to you in context of Turntide? How do you balance being realistic and super ambitious in your vision? Yeah, it's really about facing the problems head on, sort of moving towards discomfort, maybe would be a personal way to phrase it. We have five core values that we sort of use to drive the company. One of them is include and grow individuals. So that means, okay, you're going to be giving feedback and growing, and it's going to be kind of uncomfortable. The value is not ensure comfort for yourself and those around you. <laughs> it's kind of the opposite of that. You know, you can't grow without being uncomfortable and pushing into the new territory. So yeah, the most important thing is there's a very long list of problems like hardware, as you said, very hard. There's no way to avoid that. And so just facing these things head on and, you know, not sticking your head in the sand, hoping it'll get easier, building that into the culture. There's no way we'd be here if we didn't have that attitude. I just want to ask a couple of final questions, what you see for the future. I'm wondering where you see Turntide 5, 10, even 20 years from now, and what would constitute success for you? I really genuinely think that the mission at least the current mission that we have is focused around a 2040, actually ambitious, but achievable goal. So, you know, we're part of the Amazon, the climate pledge, the Paris Accord is all about getting to carbon neutral by 2050. You know, the Amazon climate pledge is 2040. And, and I do think when you account for the non-linear sort of exponential effects of adopting new technology, that is actually doable. I would say by 2040, we certainly want to be the biggest motor company. We're more than just a motor company. It's really about all these systems. But I'd like to think that we could have a really significant contribution towards making all these motor-driven systems much more efficient, eliminating the need for fossil fuels and you know, virtually every single thing that moves. The last thing that'll go that way is kind of 777 commercial aircraft, but I think you can use fuel cells for that even. So by 2040, really you know, having either already achieved or a very clear near-term pathway to a fossil fuel free world, fresh air for everybody, as I say. So that would be a 20 year goal. You know, there's obviously interim steps along the way. Five years from now is kind of the, the next key one that we're building towards. We have the 
pillars for the next five years in place now. We didn't at the beginning of the year because we had to, through the acquisition with the transport stuff, some of the key inverter designs that take three or four years to get safety certified. We were able to fast track that through, through some of that M&A we did earlier this year. By five years from now, having switch reluctance be able to be a kind of ubiquitous electric vehicle traction motor, that's a huge milestone. And if we can do that, then you basically know the rare earth problem isn't going to derail sustainability. If we can prove that over the, before the next five years, then it's just a matter of scaling up production and getting into new markets after that. So I think really the next five years is about anchoring our place in these initial markets and getting the core technology to the point where you're really just iterating and optimizing on it. Between years 2025 and 2040, it's just chewing away at one fossil fuel thing at a time and leaving all the dinosaur bones in the ground where they belong. Right. And lastly, stemming from that, are there any kind of innovations, technical or otherwise, that you can foresee down the road? Yeah, we're in the early stages of this digital twin revolution. Today, you see digital twin used in other kind of very high value applications. You know, we're working on it for the motor. I think the key thread of innovation is the shift to the merge of atoms and bits, essentially software-driven hardware that's truly defined by the software. And so you're going to see the ability to crank out new hardware move to the speed of how quickly we can create software. And that's going to be enabled by all this connectivity, like the IoT cell phone stack that we're piggybacking off of. The CTO of Ansys, big simulation software company has been on our board for a couple of years. So we have some pretty unique capabilities that we've been co-developing with Ansys. And that whole idea of simulation-based design of turning the hardware into a software-driven product, all that is just going to help massively accelerate the pace that you can come out with new hardware design. So I think the lessons from the software industry trickling into the world of atoms and hardware and high energy systems, that's kind of the key thread that's going to make this possible by 2040 and not like by 2100. That's interesting. But hardware will still remain hard, right? To a certain degree. <laughs> yeah, you have to respect it, you know, right? I mean, 150 kilowatts will definitely knock you on your butt faster than a bug into your software code. Well, that's our podcast. I want to thank Ryan Morris, Chairman and CEO of Turntide Technologies, for joining us. Thanks also to our great McKinsey on Startups production team, Molly Carlin, Polly Noah, Sid Romtree, Myron Shergan, and Katie Znamorowski. And finally, thank you as always for listening. We hope you'll return for future episodes. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.